Uh, we have been in a long series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we took a break from for a couple of weeks, uh, but we're returning to once again uh, this morning. And um, just by way of, of reminder, we've been saying that the Sermon on the Mount describes what life is like in the kingdom of God, right? So if you're a Christian and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, meaning that you uh, do not try to find your identity, try to find your strength, try to find your hope in yourself or in your achievements, but rather you recognize that, that you could never find favor with God by yourself on your own. So you put your trust in Him, in His finished work on your behalf, so that there's nothing you have to do to, to gain favor with God. You've just put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you know that through that faith, Jesus' perfect record of obedience is credited to you, so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a wicked sinner. Rather, he sees you as a child that he delights in. When that happens, you enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And what that means then is that you live a life according to values that are different from the values of the secular world around you in which you find yourself. You live according to these kingdom values. So the, the Sermon on the Mount, in a sense, you could say is a, is a portrait of a kingdom citizen. Now, the first thing we saw in the Beatitudes when we looked at that is, is the character of a kingdom citizen. What are they like? Then when we looked at the salt and light passage, we saw the influence of a kingdom citizen. What's the influence that, that members of Christ's kingdom should have in the world around them? And then when we went through all of those different moral teachings in chapter 5, we looked at the, the moral righteousness or the moral compass that a kingdom citizen is supposed to have. Now, when we enter into chapter 6 here, what we see is that Jesus is starting to drill down on the motives, on, on the motivation of a kingdom citizen. What is it that motivates a follower of Jesus Christ to live according to this kingdom ethic that he has been laying out in the previous chapter? And Jesus uses these three practices, you could call them uh, the three acts of piety, these spiritual disciplines that were very important to the Jews, and in fact actually were practiced by and are still practiced by a number of different religions in the world, but they were especially important to the Jewish religion, that is the practice of prayer, the practice of giving to the needy, the practice of fasting. He uses these, these practices to illustrate the motive that drives a kingdom citizen to behave in the way that they do. And what might shock you, actually, if you are a Christian, is the motive that Jesus gives. And if you're not a Christian, it's actually going to make you say, Ha! I knew it! What am I talking about? Well, look at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Jesus wants Christians to be careful not to practice their righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Rather, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Because if you do that, you won't get a reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus wants Christians to be rewarded for their righteousness. By his heavenly father. And that can wig Christians out. 
to think about this idea of, of rewards, that, that you can gain a reward from doing good or behaving properly. Because it sounds like, it sounds like you're using God, right? It, it would be like a woman who, or a man who married a woman for her money. We would say, well, that's, that's mercenary. That's not the Christian's motivation for why they do good. And a non-Christian is reading that and saying, ha ha, I knew it. I knew it. That's what religion is all about. Religion is all about trying to get stuff from God. You do good, you get the prize. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. And we know that Christianity is not based upon you doing the right things to get God's favor. Christianity is opposite to that. Christianity says that, that there is nothing you can do to get to God's favor. But he, out of his grace and kindness, gives you his favor by letting Jesus Christ die in your place and paying the penalty for your sin. And when that sinks into you... You want to obey, you want to live in a way that pleases him, you want to do the things that, that, that he wants for you and from you. Uh, we're in uh, Life Explored right now, Mark and I are doing this together with a, a bunch of folks, and we, uh, we studied the story of Zacchaeus just this past week. You know, Zacchaeus, the little guy who wants to see Jesus, he's a wicked chief tax collector, and he climbs up a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus goes up uh, under the tree and looks up and sees him there, and he's like, oh, I'm seeing Jesus. And Jesus says, come down from there, I must stay at your house today. And that's a big deal in those times in the first century, man, when you enter into somebody's house and, and receive their hospitality. That is like saying... We are bonded. We are in fellowship, intimate fellowship with one another. I am willing to be identified with you as a brother, as a friend, whatever. And what we were, we were just hammering on as we read that story and discussed it was the fact that not once anywhere in that story do we hear Jesus say, well, you got to quit being such a shyster. You know, you got to quit extorting people for their money. All he does is say... I must stay at your house, Zacchaeus. He, he offers grace and fellowship, seemingly with no conditions at all. I've been working on that in my own head for the last little while, and it's just, it's gnawing at me. Because I think I have a lot of relationships that are probably, if I were completely honest, kind of conditional. Like as long as you're a nice person and a good person. As long as you treat me well, I'm happy to be in relationship with you. But if you're a pain in the neck, right? Like if you're writing angry emails to me about church politics stuff or you didn't like the sermon or whatever, I'm going to be like, eh, I don't know if I want to hang out with you and spend time with you and have much of a relationship with you. I think I do that probably more than I realize just sort of naturally. And here is Jesus like driving his grace completely against that instinct. It's driving me nuts because I'm thinking, man, I, I still have a lot of changes to make in my life. I, 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 still have, I still have to come to grips with the radical grace of Jesus Christ. That was like a little mini sermon inside the sermon. I apologize. But, uh, you know, this is sometimes preaching is a, is a bit of a, a therapy session for the preacher. So you just got to <laughs> live with it. Um, my main point, though, is that the idea 
of reward makes Christians nervous because it feels wrong, right? We don't want to say that there are rewards, but Jesus actually talks about rewards a lot. In the Sermon on the Mount already, he has talked about rewards. In verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Okay, in verse 46 of chapter 5, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And the implication there is, is that there is a reward available as long as you're not behaving the way the tax collectors do. In his parables, Jesus talks about rewards. And the truth is, in the Bible, according to, to, to scriptures, there is a reward that awaits us. And what we see in this passage today is that Jesus does not want any of his followers, any of his disciples to miss out on those rewards. So what does he mean by that? Here, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at sort of his warning about righteousness. We're going to look at these illustrations of righteousness and why he uses them. And then we're going to look at the right motive for righteousness, as Jesus describes it. And then we're going to find out how we can have that proper motive. So, first of all, what does Jesus say in terms of warning about righteousness? Now, look again at verse 1. It says, be careful. Be careful. Literally, he says, beware. Or you could almost translate it as watch out. He's saying that there is a mistake you can make when you think that you are in the kingdom of God, and that mistake is, is that you think you cannot be deceived. Watch out. Be on your guard. Beware. You can think that you are safe when you're in the kingdom of God, that you cannot be fooled by temptations or, or by the wiles of the devil. You cannot be led astray by his schemes. And that, that's a natural human inclination, you know. We all want to believe that we are shrewd that we're smart, that we are streetwise, we are not naive, we are sophisticated, you know? Um, parents with teenagers, we always like to think, you know, I know what my kids are up to. I got a pretty good handle on them. I can read them, you know? I know when they're lying to me or when they're when they're shading the truth or when they're hiding stuff from me. Yeah, it's pretty hard to pull the wool over my eyes, you know. And then when your kids become adults and they, they don't have to fear your punishment anymore because you're, they're too old to be punished, you're sitting around a campfire and then the stories come out. <laughs> oh yeah, I used to do this. I used to smoke out my bedroom window. You had no idea. What? We like to believe that we're the sophisticated ones, that we're the ones who can't be fooled. But Jesus says, don't be like that. Be on your guard. Against what? Well, in verse 1, again, it says, be careful, be on your guard, not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. He's saying, be careful that you're not doing good, you're not being righteous, you're not following my commands and my laws for the wrong reason, which is to be seen by other people. There are people out there who do good deeds simply to be seen. 
Their motive is to impress others. Their motive is to gain the acclaim and the praise of other people for the good things that they do. And what Jesus is telling us here is that, look at the one you try to impress is the one who's going to reward you. Let me say that again. Super tweetable. The one you're trying to impress is the one who's going to reward you. If you try, if you go about your life seeking the praise of human beings for how you live and how you behave and how you conduct yourself, you'll get it. You will get it. But here's the thing. If you get that reward from others, you won't get God's. Now realize, Jesus is not saying, okay, he's not saying don't bother with doing good, therefore. Okay, there are some people who say, yeah, you know, I don't like it when uh, the pastor tells me I have to do stuff. That sounds like legalism. We're free from the law as Christians, and we so therefore we shouldn't worry about being told how to live or told what to do because, because that's just legalistic thinking. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Back in verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, uh, what does he say? Where am I? Verse 5. Yeah. He says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. Jesus is very, very concerned about our personal holiness and the way we behave. And Jesus' problem is not even that we practice our righteousness in front of other people. I mean, in that whole section on salt and light, in verse 16, he says this, he says, uh, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus is not opposed to the non-believing world seeing you behave in a believing way. It's not opposed. He's not opposed to, to you allowing your good deeds to be seen by other people. Of course not. What he's concerned about is the motivation. The problem is that you want to be seen to, to be impressive, to get glory, to get the attention of others. And he says you should be seeking the glory, the attention, the approval, the smile of God. Everything in your life should be Godward instead of people-word. And that's why he gives this warning. And then he gives three very interesting illustrations to explain this warning. And, and I want you to notice how brilliant they are. Because, you see, each of these practices has to do, in part, with a different kind of relationship. Giving to the needy has to do with our relationship with other people. Prayer has to do with our relationship with God. And fasting is a discipline. It is a, a expression of self-discipline. And it has to do with our relationship with ourselves. And all of these relationships, Jesus is saying, by giving us these three illustrations, he's saying in all of these relationships, in your relationship with other people, in your relationship with me, in your relationship with, with yourself, you should be concerned about the pleasure of God, not about the pleasure of human beings. About the impressive, about, the, about pleasing God, not about the other people being pleased with you. And you cannot have both. So let's look at these illustrations together for a minute. First of all, he says, verse 2, So when you give to the needy, 
Do not announce with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus gives a couple of funny sort of pictures, right? I don't know if you've ever thought of having trumpets go off when you put your money in the basket. That would be kind of weird, right? Well, look at me, put my big check in what looks like flower pots. I know I've been told that our new baskets look like flower pots. That's because that money is seed of the kingdom of God being <laughs> planted so that it can grow. Yeah, we think of everything here. Everything has a reason here at Grace Valley. No, they were on sale at the dollar store. Um, but have you ever been to the unveiling or watched on TV the unveiling of a hospital wing? And the wing is the so-and-so memorial whatever. The Juravinsky Clinic. The DeGroote School of Business. Now, that might not be how you and I trumpet our giving, but we're, we're a little more subtle than that, but we could maybe let it slip that, hey, we're not going south this winter because, uh, well, you know, we had to give to the GVC capital campaign. In verse 3, Jesus says, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's kind of a ridiculous idea, right? You know, your left, how does your left hand not know what your right hand is doing. How is that possible? Well, what Jesus is trying to describe to us is a, a profound, radical self-forgetfulness. In your giving, he says, don't keep track. Don't keep score. Don't think to yourself, well, I gave a big chunk to that capital campaign. I know I did in my own heart. I know I did do that. Don't Keep your eyes on the things that you have done. Rather, have this, this radical self-forgetfulness. How does this work? Well, I'll give you an illustration that my wife's going to love. She tells the story sometimes of how years ago, her and her friend went to visit a friend in North York, and they came down the 400, and they were supposed to return to Hamilton and go west, but instead they made a wrong turn, and they were so engrossed in their conversation and having such a good time, they didn't realize they were going the wrong way until they hit Bowmanville. Hopefully she's in Grace Kids today. <laughs> you know, has that ever happened to you? You're driving along, you're like, whoa, I'm, I'm here already. Uh, the idea here is what, what Sinfer, Sinclair Ferguson calls the heart being at leisure from itself. Isn't that a beautiful way of putting it? The heart is at leisure from itself. We are, we are free from the shackles of, of self-regard and concerns of the world, building our reputation. That's the picture Jesus is, is painting here, that you're not constantly sizing yourself up and, and, and sort of counting how you're doing and, and comparing yourself to others and assessing how well you're doing compared to other people. That's what the first illustration is about. The second illustration Jesus uses 
is prayer. He says in verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Now, Jesus is not saying that public prayer is wrong. Dan did not sin by leading us in a corporate prayer just a few minutes ago. Furthermore, further down, Jesus says, and and we're going to look at this more in the coming weeks as we study the Lord's Prayer together. He says, when you pray, do it this way. This is verse 9, our Father in heaven. So Jesus is assuming a corporate component to our prayers that we would do this together. What he does is, is he calls people who pray publicly with enthusiasm hypocrites. It's a word that was used at this time for a Greek actor who would, who would wear a mask and then play their part in a Greek play. And Jesus says that when you pray like, like the, the, the Pharisees do, you're, you're a hypoc- or, or like the hypocrites do, then what you're doing is, is, is you're simply playing a part. Now, what's the part you're playing? Simply this. Prayer, friends, is an expression of of an intimate relationship with God. Prayer is the way that we express, in singing as well, but certainly in prayer is the way that we express our covenant, intimate relationship with our God. It's where we commune with him and we tell him we love him and we tell him we delight in him and we tell him we we are thankful to him for all the things he has done for us and, and especially for all the things he is for us. We're, we're communing with him. We're concentrating our attention and our focus on him. We're giving him, trying to give him our undivided attention. And a hypocrite is someone who tries to get other people to think that they have that nice, deep, profound, intimate relationship with God. By praying publicly and enthusiastically so that you will say, Oh man, what a holy person. Oh man, that person really must have a deep and profound relationship with Jesus. It's a little bit like PDA. Do you guys know what PDA is? I'm almost 50, so we, this was my thing when I was in high school. Too much PDA, public displays of affection. My generation's uncomfortable with that. Showing how much you like your girlfriend or boyfriend by, you know, touching, hugging, walking arm in arm where you can't actually walk straight or properly, but you're, you're trying really hard because you got your arm wrapped around the other person's waist. Doing it to show off that we're together. Here's a good rule of thumb. Does it mean, or sorry, does this mean that you shouldn't pray in public? No, no, no. Here's the good rule of thumb. When you're tempted to hide, show. When you're tempted to show, hide. That's what John Stott says. And it's brilliant because it means that if you're a family that prays before meals and you go to McDonald's, go ahead and pray before your meal. That's what you do. That's your practice. You're not being a hypocrite by praying out loud. But if you say, let's hold hands, children, and let's stand and let's all sing together, praise God from... That's the kind of thing Jesus is saying is hypocrisy. And the last thing he gives, the last one is fasting. Now, the Jews would fast for all kinds of reasons. The Old Testament gives you many reasons uh, for fasting. 
Uh, it was a common practice by the time of Christ's uh, uh, ministry for people to fast. You showed your grief. You showed repentance. You fasted for high holy days. You, you fasted to plead with God to have a certain answer prayer. Maybe you remember when David's son was, was dying and David fasted pleading with God for his life to be spared. Fasting was meant to be a way of saying to God, look, as much as I desire food, God, I desire your presence more. Because when you fast, you get hungry and you, you feel, you know, you feel, you realize just how much you think about food and how much your life actually revolves around food. Oftentimes more than God. Fasting is, is a way of reminding the self that a person does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's another discipline of self-forgetfulness because it's meant to focus our attention on our need and, yes, on our desire for God. And so what, this, what these three things together show us is, is you can show off your piety, okay, by, by pomp and parade, but also by making yourself look pitiful. Oh, that guy, you know, he's, he's so miserable, he, he must really be a serious Christian. He is so bent out of shape over his sin and just always has his eyes down saying, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinner. They must be holy. That's another way of showing off your holiness, your piety. Now, today we don't necessarily make a big show of, of our giving in the collection or, or pray on street corners. I was in downtown Toronto yesterday and there was a, a woman street preaching on, on the corner. I've never done that. And most of us probably have never fasted, even though it is a biblical spiritual practice. I confess, I've, I've only fasted a couple times. I, I, I'm not very good at it. I, I got a lot to learn in that area. So these might not be our things, but, but why do you go to church? Do you ever go to church and think, well, you know, we, I better go to church. I haven't been there in a while. I've got to show my face in case I get a phone call from the pastor or an elder. Why do you serve in church? It's been interesting. Sometimes people say, I, I like to be behind the scenes. I don't like to be out front, and I like to serve that way. But then when they, when they don't get the recognition that they're hoping for from someone, the thank you that they're looking for, they can kind of be a bit resentful. Uh, I don't think this happens so much now anymore because it's probably looked down upon. But, you know, 10 years ago, it was pretty popular on social media to, like, take a picture of you and your coffee and your Bible doing your morning devos. Social media, social media encourages narcissism, you know? Like, the whole idea behind it is to platform yourself. <laughs> Sometimes people uh, like to be controversial on their social media and gain flack so that they can say, well, look at all the hits I'm taking for Jesus. I'm just asking questions. I'm a disruptor. It's pretty easy, friends, to be wrongly motivated for a lot of the things we do. See, the point, the, the point is this, or the question is this. Who's the audience of your life? 
We all want to get noticed. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to be approved of. We all want that. We cannot escape that. But, but you know, it's actually deeper than that. We all want glory. Nothing less. I've told this before. One of my favorite scenes in the movies of The Lord of the Rings is at the very end of the last movie when the hobbits come out and King Aragorn steps up to them and when they see him in the sea of people part and they see him walking up to them, they, they quickly bow their knee and then he says, no, 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 my friends. You bow for no one. And then the king bows before these four little hobbits. And it resonates with my heart. And I, I think those of you who maybe have seen this were moved by it too because there is something in us, friends, that wants the universe to stand up and say, well done. C.S. Lewis put it best in his remarkable sermon, The Weight of Glory. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers. The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to, to bridge some chasm that yawns beneath us and reality, between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desires. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. To hear the creator of the universe say, well done, good and faithful servant, that is the inconsolable secret each and every human heart lives with. We may not know that that's the secret. We may not realize that, that our neuroticism and our insecurity is rooted in a longing to be accepted and applauded by our Creator. And so we may chase other smaller things that we think will fill that void, but that's what's sitting there. To be satisfied in God, that's what you're longing for. To have Him smile on you. To have His commendation. Think about this. What's the proper reward for love? A man has love for a woman. And the proper reward of that love is marriage. What's the proper reward for a soldier who goes to war? It's victory. If he goes to war simply for medals and accolades, we would say that that's a mercenary reason to go to war. You need something bigger to live for. You need to live for victory. And that's the proper reward for the soldier. It makes sense. What's the proper reward for your righteousness, friends? The commendation of your creator. Well, how do you get that? Have you noticed? We're on the fourth final point. Have you noticed? In this passage, it's very interesting. Jesus says, your father... Your father, over and over and over again. Verse 2, 
Verse 4. Verse 6. Come on, get them up there. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to get them up there. Verse 8. Verse 14. Verse 15. Verse 16. Twice in verse 18. In Matthew chapter 6, in this little passage, there are more references to God as our Father than the Old Testament combined. The entire Old Testament. See, the wonder of the gospel is that this almighty creator of the universe can be our father. God is our creator. He is the one who made us. He is the one who rules over us. He owns us as our creator, as our ruler, and he's the only one. And therefore, he has huge, unprecedented, unparalleled power. But when the king, when the president, when the potentate is your father, all that power, it's, it's gentled towards you. It is exercised in a way of love and of tenderness. That power is, is no longer an intimidation. It is a commendation. When Jesus, God's own son, when he died for your sin, when he died for your your neuroticism, your self-regard, your foolish pursuit of reward from other people, constantly comparing yourselves to, to this person, trying to get into that group, trying to find glory with this community, etc. When 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 his love sinks into you. You no longer you're no longer pursuing that foolish reward from those around you. You're no longer comparing yourself to other people. Instead, Jesus as your father makes you marvelously self-forgetful. What others think of you becomes immaterial. In fact, even what you think about yourself becomes kind of immaterial. All that matters is what he thinks of you. Can you believe that? That in Jesus, through Jesus, he delights in you? Some of you here, I know your story, and you've got some heavy baggage from the past, and you think to yourself, there's no stinking way that God could actually delight in me. Yes, he's forgiven my sins. Yes, he's allowed me into his kingdom. But really beneath it all, what you think is, is he kind of begrudgingly did that. He kind of opened the door to paradise to you, like saying, well, okay, yeah, I guess I made the rules. And the rules are, you're in by faith, and yeah, your faith sucks, but you've got something, so I guess you can come in. And that's how you look at God, the Father. You don't look at God, the Father, the way Zephaniah describes him, when he says that the Lord your God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Will you let that image sink in for a minute? Those of you who think you are still weighed down by the stain of your sin, your creator through Jesus Christ does not look at you begrudgingly, but he rejoices over you with singing. Have you ever met someone at the airport who you haven't seen for months or years and you see them come in and they walk around that corner at arrivals and your face lights up and you say you're here and they, they rush out and you embrace them in your arms and you feel more love love for them in that moment that you have held held on to them than you have felt for all the months and years that you've been apart. You delight in them. 
Can you believe that your creator delights in you like that? Can you believe that your savior, when you enter the new creation, is going to light up and smile from ear to ear to see you with him in paradise? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's for each and every one of us. If we would put our trust in Jesus, that's it. If that's sunk into you, what do you care if people know whether you're generous or not? What do you care if people know that you go to church or not? Well, you want them to know you go to church because you're telling them about Jesus. But you get what I mean. What do you care what people think? You don't. That's what we have to pound into ourselves week after week after week. You're getting the same application every Sunday when you come to church here. I don't know if you've noticed that. The expulsive power of a new affection, friends. If we would love Christ with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, then all these other things that cling to us they would slip away more and more and more. Let's pray for that together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, may our motivation for righteousness be the reward, the reward of being welcomed into your presence for all eternity. To experience the unblushing, pure, high-octane love of our Creator and Redeemer. May we know that now you, you delight in us, you rejoice over us with singing right now, right now. And one day you will do that face-to-face -face and forever when we meet you in eternity. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name, name we pray, amen.